Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. How's everybody? It's pretty gloomy weather this morning, isn't it? How many of you are pretty affected by the weather? Okay, it's a challenging day for you, isn't it? Let's dig deep, and uh, despite the gloominess outside, let's remember where our hope comes from. Those aren't just words. I think that we have to discipline our hearts and minds to remember where our hope comes from every day. Otherwise, this world will completely ravage our hearts. This morning, I want to start a new sermon series. And this series will probably take us through the better part of the remainder of the the year. And it's a series I've wanted to preach for a very long time. Um, It's the Gospel of John. I love the Gospel of John. And uh, I I think for a lot of people... The Gospel of John has been a very meaningful part of Scripture. Uh, In fact, it contains the most famous and familiar Bible verse in all of history, doesn't it? I mean, you see it at sporting events, on poster boards, John 3.16, little children, even those outside the church have memorized it. And so I want to look at, unpack the Gospel of John because I believe that God has used this Gospel again and again in the lives of people to reveal who Jesus Christ is, and to awaken a spiritual life that often wants to fall asleep or remain dead. A lot of people have special stories about the Gospel of John. I also have a personal story about John's Gospel, and I want to, it has to do with this Motel 6. (laughs) I'll explain that in a minute. Um, About 25 years ago, I was in seminary, and one of the requirements was to do a one-month internship somewhere in the mission field because I was a missions and evangelism major in seminary. And so for mine, I decided to go to Tijuana, Mexico. I wouldn't go back there today because it's crazy. They're killing everybody over there right now. It's so dangerous. But back when I was there, it was just rough, not murderous. And uh, I lived... On the beach, not right on the beach, but there was a little base right on the beach about 100 yards away from the U.S. border. And I lived there for a month. And we did some ministry among the poorest of the poor. And, you know, hygiene wasn't great. There were a couple days where we swam in the ocean only to find out later through health department reports that they had emptied sewage downstream and we were swimming basically in that. And so I got really sick one day. And in fact, I think it was the sickest I've ever been in my life before or since. I was so sick that the fever was burning hot enough that I was becoming delirious. And I'm probably a hypochondriac to begin with, but I really felt like this could be the end. I felt like Fred Sanford. I mean, this is the end. This is a big one. I really got scared that it was over for me. I couldn't think straight. I felt horrible. And so... um, Okay, so you probably think I'm exaggerating. I've just never been this sick before. I wanted to read the Bible (laughs) and prepare for the end. And it's funny that though I was a seminarian and I had been a Christian for a number of years, when I actually thought the end might be near, I felt some amount of fear. It was weird. I, I felt kind of what's on the other side if I actually do go. And so I was drawn to the Gospel of John and I started reading around midnight, and kind of, I was kind of fuzzy, so it took me a while, but I finished reading the entire Gospel of John around 3 in the morning, and I felt this peace take over me. I remember thinking, I know who I am. I know who I believe. I know where I'm going if this is the end. And then, being the hypochondriac that I am, I thought to myself, I am not dying in Mexico, man. I want to go home. So I stumbled across the border. There's no cars available. The the person who ran the base I was staying at was dead asleep. So I just stumbled on foot. 
across the border, the customs agents looked at me like I was bringing a, a viral epidemic to the United States. And then I found an all-night pharmacy. I bought a bottle of NyQuil, and I chugged most of it. I don't think that's right. <laughs> but I was like, I'm, this is the end. I'm just, and I chugged almost the entire bottle of NyQuil, and I checked into this Motel 6 in San Isidro, California, right on the other side of the border, south of San Diego. And I basically got a room there, and I lay down on the bed and said, all right, this is it then. They'll find me, and uh, I'm coming home. Well, the next sensation I was aware of was a bright, piercing light just shining into my face. And I woke up, and it was like one in the afternoon the next day, and there was just light shining. I hadn't drawn the, the, the blinds, but I actually thought I was in heaven. I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating. I said, oh, oh my gosh. Because all I saw was sunlight just right in my eye. And I thought, this is heaven. They, they say you see a light. And I remember the comfort of like, not being surprised. Like, oh, good. <laughs> Made it. You know? And I just, that whole night, I remember thinking and feeling how much it made a difference for me to read the words of the Gospel of John. I, I was so grateful because it wasn't just rigorously theological, but it spoke with such realness and heart to who Jesus was. And it was written by someone who didn't see Jesus as a religious figure to be admired from afar, but as someone who brought real life to him. And I drew so much comfort from that. And that day that I woke up in that hotel, um, it's marked me forever. It reminds me to this day that I have a certainty who I am, where I'm headed. And I actually, since that day, um, have not been afraid. That was a really powerful, meaningful day for me. And by the grace of God, I survived whatever that thing was, but I was in very bad shape. I actually just didn't go back. I stayed there for a couple days. I, in fact, stayed in the exact same room many years later with Jeannie, and told her that story, and she thought I was crazy. <laughs> you know, the Gospel of John was written by the man who was the youngest of the 12 people who followed Jesus at first. And yet, he lived longer than all the rest of them. He outlived them by many years, and tradition, history, suggests that he may be among the only ones who didn't lose his life for the sake of the Gospel, in terms of martyrdom. Um, He lived and ministered largely in Ephesus, and it's likely he wrote this gospel very late in his life, maybe towards the the latter part of his earthly days. John had a lot of experiences with Jesus. And in fact, even among the 12, he had more experiences with Jesus than the other guys because he was part of an inner circle of three, along with his brother James and his buddy Peter, the three of them were regularly called out by Jesus to have special experiences and special excursions, little field trips where he would just bring them to a thing, show them something amazing, and then talk to them about it. And so John, as a young man, had been deeply marked by the years he spent with Jesus of Nazareth. And he had a lifetime to ponder and to process everything he'd seen and experienced. And so this is not something he wrote as a young, impetuous guy as things were unfolding, just giving flash images or impressions of what he saw. This was as an older man having really chewed on what he experienced, the things that had so marked his whole life. And knowing that he was coming near the end of his days, he had a desire to write down everything so that the things he shared for so many years verbally would now be kept in a written record forever. And when he had written this gospel, it was packaged together with the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those four gospels together formed what they call a codex, a loose-leaf type book bound in the traditional book format like we have, uh, unlike the scrolls that were so common in those days. And it was circulated through the churches so that people could share this with others. They could read and be encouraged by the record of the ministry, the life, and the words of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
Their three Gospels together are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Synoptic Gospel. How many of you would like to come up and help me explain what that means? Yeah, I, I had to actually make sure I understood why it was called the Synoptic Gospels. I knew that they were similar, but that's in fact exactly what the word means. They look the same. They see it all together. It's very similar to the way that we use the word synopsis. The the goal, the purpose of these three Gospels was to put down a written historical record of the things that Jesus had said and done. And by and large, they record the same kinds of events in very similar sequence and from a very similar point of view. So that even though there are very distinct differences between the three of them in language and tone, they feel like three of a kind. And then you read John's gospel and you go, this is not like the other. You know, remember that Sesame Street thing? One of these things is not like the other. Even when I was a young man and reading the Bible for the first time, I was told that these four belong together. But one of them, I was read John and go, this is not like the other ones at all. Something feels different about this gospel. I don't think John's main purpose was to leave a recorded historical record. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't historical. He does record events, and those things are factual, but it doesn't feel to me as I read John's gospel that his main goal was to make sure nothing fell off the table, that he, he comprehensively listed all the things. It seems like, very clear to me, and to many others, now I'm not just making this up all by myself, but it seems that the main goal of John was to say something about Jesus that would stir the hearts of his readers. That his main goal was to reveal something about Jesus that people needed to know and to apprehend, to experience, so that their lives would be forever marked by it. It may seem weird to start a series by looking at nearly the end of the book, but I think that's the right thing to do. When we look at, I'm sorry about the heading, copying and pasting is your enemy. That should be John chapter 20, if you're taking notes. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Nearly the end of the the gospel of John, he himself, in his own words, lays out the purpose. He said, this is why I wrote these words. What he says is, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, we have to be careful how we understand that. He wasn't saying, please understand, this Jesus is an amazing dude, and in fact, he's like the Messiah. He's saying, you Jews to whom he's largely writing, you know that for centuries our people have talked about, looked forward to, expected the Messiah, the Christ, who would come and save us. And what I want you to know is that thing, that idea which has held a bookmark in our people, in our lives, in our history, for so many centuries, this man, Jesus, whom I know, is that guy. Don't make any mistake about it. You may have lots of opinions about Jesus, but the most important thing you can know about him is this, that he is the Christ, and that if you believe in him, you will have what he refers to as life. Not just life forever playing a harp and floating on a cloud in heaven, but real life even now that will continue on for eternity. You know, when you think about the Apostle John's life, he had seen a lot by most Um, scholars' opinions, he lived very close to 100 years old, probably around 94, 95 when he passed away. That is a really long lifetime in those days. And in nearly a century of life and ministry of amazing experiences, he had seen so much. He had pondered so much. I feel like if I get to 100 and I'm writing a book about all that I experienced walking with Jesus, I've often wondered what that book would look like But I'm really struck by some things about John's gospel. One of the things that most people have made notice of is that John six times refers to himself in the gospel 
as the disciple who Jesus loved. I don't know if he's trying to just be stuck up or snarky. He's like, you know, the other guy's whatever, but I'm the one, you know, that Jesus loved. Me and Jesus. I don't think he's trying to be boastful or snarky. I think what he's saying is this. As I look back on the, the years I spent with Jesus, and he showed me. I mean, John was up there on the mountain at the transfiguration. He had seen things that very few human beings had witnessed. Miracles. Deliverance from demon possession. The healing of physical disease with a touch. And yet the thing he remembers most about Jesus is how much Jesus loved him. It's the thing that stayed with him well into his old age, so that as he writes this record of all he had seen and experienced, the one thing that really stands out for John is, man, he loved me. And the thing that makes that recollection of love so powerful for John is I didn't realize at first who it was that was showing me so much love, but as I now come to understand that he is the Messiah we've been waiting for for so long, it blows my mind that he was so real and intimate and loving towards me. It's not just that he loved me, because lots of people have probably loved him, but it was Jesus the Christ who loved him so much, so that he could say with great depth of feeling, you know who I am? I'm the one that Jesus loved. I want to be able to say a lot of things at the end of my life. One of the things I hope to be able to say is I finished well. But I hope that along with John, one of the things that I can say, looking back at all my decades of following and serving Jesus, is that I know he loved me. There's a famous story of a theologian named Karl Barth who was perhaps the most influential theologian of his lifetime. And he was such an influential theologian that secular journalists would sometimes chase him around and ask him for comments and statements. And one time, after an event, someone pulled him aside and said, Dr. Bart, would you tell us what's the most profound biblical truth you've ever heard or learned? And he simply said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Maybe if you don't know who Karl Barth is, that doesn't really stir you, but this is a dude who forgot more theology than I'll ever know. The stuff he forgets before breakfast exceeds everything I've ever learned. And for this to be the statement of his life tells me something about those who really do understand something about God. That the greatest truth that will mark our lives is that we met, we knew, we loved, and were loved by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In the time I have remaining, I want to share with you something that I shared with our leaders last Sunday. And I want to share it with you because um, a couple people said this is really important, but also because I think it's relevant to what John wants us to learn and to hear from his gospel. See, I think for a great many people, their Christian life begins with a powerful experience. I can say that was the truth for me. I've had some really significant experiences that led me to want to know a little bit more about Christianity. And maybe that's the way it started for you. There was a kind of experience that really profoundly touched you and said, you know, this is different. It makes me feel like, as my daughter Jordan often says, it makes me feel some kind of way. Like something, something weird stirs you, and you're like, what is this? And you, you're drawn to it magnetically, instinctively. Now, I've been thinking about the kinds of experiences that typically represent the inroad, the front door to faith for a lot of people. And I came up with six, and I think there are probably ten more, but I'll just give you six of them. And you know, these experiences, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to because this is the way so many people enter the Christian experience, one step at a time. The preacher in me kicked in, and I had to come up with six C's, so some of the words are a little bit forced. 
You'll see what I mean, though, as I explain him. One of them is just catechism. You learn something or hear something, and you think to yourself, I've never heard anything like that. That explains so much. It makes a lot of sense to me. It feels true. I can't prove it necessarily, but sometimes a person is invited to church. They sit in a sermon. The preacher says something, and they say in their hearts, I feel like that's right. I've heard a lot of people try to say stuff, but that somehow touched something in me, and I want to hear more. For other people, it's character. They see how messed up the world is. They also know how messed up they are, and they're so tired of themselves. Uh, Here's the thing. We don't need judgment because most people are already sick of themselves, okay? Maybe that's true of you. It's definitely true of me. I don't need anyone pointing fingers at me because every time I look in the mirror, I go, you stink, man. I'm so tired of my weaknesses and my flaws. I'm tired of going through the same junk for over 30 years of my life. Just when is this going to stop? Why can't I be different? And yet, maybe one day something happens in your life through the influence of other Christians or through something you've learned, and you experience a personal breakthrough. Something in you actually starts to change. And you think to yourself, this is amazing. I've been working on this for so long, and somehow I've begun to change. Maybe for others, it's the experience of community. We've been alone for so long. Even our family of origin wasn't a safe place. So even growing up, we couldn't look at our mom or our dad or our siblings and say, that's my people. And then one day, we stumble into a group of people, and they are so welcoming, so loving. And we think, you know, this is awesome. You're the nicest people I've ever met. In fact, this is how many cults grow. They take you bowling. They take you out to movies. They invite you to singles night. And they're just so welcoming. And people are like, that's all I really wanted. And they're drawn in. You can tell me anything. I don't care about all the other stuff. Really what matters is that I've been alone for so long and I found my people. I've always wanted a tribe. For other people, it's commitment. They know they want to give themselves to something, but nothing yet has grabbed their hearts. They don't have a purpose in their life. For others, it's compassion. They have an experience of serving others, and contrary to expectation, it actually feels good to serve others. It felt great to give away cold water and food to people. It felt wonderful to bring medical care to people who couldn't afford it. And they experience that and think there's something beautiful about being selfless, and serving others. And another very common way or experience through which people enter the Christian journey is, this is the most forced C word, it's cornucopia. There are some people who go through life in a place of scarcity all the time. Nobody's ever taken care of them. Nobody's ever provided anything. They've always been short. They've always had too little. And they've always wondered, will anyone ever bless me, take care of me? And then they enter the the Christian realm, and somebody gives them something. Free and clear, no strings attached. Something happens, and they experience a blessing, and they think, this is amazing. I've never been to a place that gave without asking for repayment. And they're drawn in. And what happens to a lot of people is that if that's the experience that draws you in, that's the experience you kind of park at. So I've, I've given you this image of a rain cloud with a sprinkle because I think experiences are like a sprinkling of rain. It's not a downpour. It's enough to get the ground wet and form puddles, much like today. So we sit in these pools and we try to go deeper in these experiences to keep the experience going. So for people who are drawn in by something they learned, they become students of the Bible. They try to learn all that they can. And here's the reason why I think that happens to us is because these things touch on a deep yearning or need that we've had all our lives. It it speaks to the way that God wired us. So I know some people who are podcast junkies who love going to conferences, attending classes. They listen to other preachers, not just their own pastor. I know you can hardly imagine this. But there are people who not just listen to my preaching, but that's not enough. They go home and download other preachers and listen to sermons in their free time. What? But that's because there's something inherently satisfying about learning something and learning the truth. 
For people who, who are drawn in by a change or a personal breakthrough or transformation, it speaks to their deep yearning for change. I've always wanted the power to be different, to be more than, and I've never found it, but I feel like this is a little hope. That maybe through this faith, I can actually start to change. Because the truth is, I'm so sick of who I am, who I've always been. I would love to be different, and maybe this is the way. And so they begin to chase after a transformation because they've always wanted to change. For people who are drawn into a community, it's because there's always been a yearning, a desire to belong. and They never found it till now. And because of that, that's really what holds them to this faith, is that they finally found community. And it almost doesn't matter then what happens around them, what is being taught, because as long as these people remain my people, I'm okay here. And that's what happens to a lot of people. For others, they experience a cause so compelling it's worth giving themselves to, and they wrap their whole lives around a purpose or a calling, and they are driven by this sense of vision. My whole life, I will be given to this. I've met people like that, and it's always interesting because sometimes they're completely devoted to something that I know is important, but I feel nothing for in my heart. And I feel guilty about it. You know, like there are people who are just so outraged about certain causes in society, and they will give their whole lives to fight for it. And I go, okay, I know it's important, but it doesn't stir me the way it stirs you. So it's fascinating to see that some people can have their whole life defined by a calling or a purpose or a cause. But that's because that's what they've been yearning for all their life. They've been haunted by the question, why am I even here? And they believe they found that answer in Christianity. For others, they are disgusted by the apathy, the selfishness in their own hearts and in society around them. And they think, doesn't anybody care about anybody else? And when they find in the Christian faith an outlet to make a difference in the world, to make things better, to bless other people, they are completely captured by it because that's what they've always wanted to do. I love people like this who who are so grieved by the way the world is, and they want to leave it different, better than they found it. And as long as that's what they're part of, they will stay at it. And finally, those people, this is how the prosperity gospel propagates all over the world, the health and wealth gospel. You know that what I'm talking about, the kind of preachers who say, God wants you to have everything right now because you are the son and daughter of the king. You should live like it. So if you want it, just pray for it. God will give it to you because that's really what the gospel is, is if you want money, ask God for money. If you want health, ask God for health. If you want friends, ask God for friends. If you want a new Lexus, ask God for a new Lexus. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. He is a rich God and he loves you. And the purpose of knowing God is so that he will give you everything you need. And that really resonates with people who've lived in scarcity and insecurity all their lives. And so as they enter the Christian faith by experiencing this dramatic provision, that becomes what they chase all their lives. They need more of it because as long as God is the one blessing them, they will stay at this for a very long time. Now, do you see where the problem lies in this? Are you guys, are you guys with me? You see where the problem lies in this? Is that these sprinklings of rain that are represented by experience, they form these shallow puddles, but the puddles dry up. Because they're not enough to hold anybody for a lifetime. And this is not theoretical. I have seen this happen dozens of times over the course of my ministry. You see people who were so into studying and then one day you see them just kind of check out. You say, how come you don't want to read your Bible? I just don't. I've seen people who were so into the church all of a sudden get over it one day and go, you know what? You're not my people anymore. And they walk away. And on and on it goes. And I think the reason that that happens is because these experiences are not infallible. These experiences are not Jesus. They are limited. They are finite. And sooner or later, disappointment and disillusion will set in if these are the things that hold you to this faith. I mean, I love the Bible. It's a great book. 
But at some point, you're going to compare what you're reading in the Bible to what's happening in your life, and you're going to say, well, the Bible says God is good. My life sucks. I just, how do I reconcile that? It says he has a good plan for my life, but I see no good plan unfolding in my life. And so this book which you love, you've studied, which you were touched by, blessed by, at some point as you compare it to the reality of life, you start to doubt and you wonder, how could this be true? Or maybe it just gets boring after a while. You've learned everything and you're like, okay, it's great, but there's a lot of other stuff in the world to be interested in. And we just drift away from it because a system of truth by itself on its own legs cannot hold the human heart for a lifetime. You know, some people are giddy with the transformation they're experiencing, but eventually, you know what happens to us? Is at one point, we realize, I haven't changed as much as I thought I did. Have you ever had that experience? Where you thought you were so over this issue in your life, and then something happens, and you just backslide, and you, you devolve, you digress back to who you once were, and you're like, I thought I was way over this. Here I am again. You know, for years... Um, when I was a new Christian, I marveled at the way that God took profanity out of my mouth and my heart. I remember how much I used to swear. And I was amazed when the swearing not only left my mouth, but I stopped thinking those words in my heart. It was a miracle. And if you knew me in eighth grade, you would know. It was a miracle. I mean, I swore a lot. I was a profanity artist, you know. But I've noticed at seasons in my Christian life, and I, I'm a little hesitant to acknowledge this because I am your pastor, but there are seasons in my life where I'm not doing very well. And I'm so disappointed that I start to hear that old profane soundtrack playing again in my mind. Someone does something really rude to me, and I'm shocked at the word that flashes in my like, Wow! <laughs> That's still in there somewhere. Where did that come from? I thought I threw that out. And eventually, this puddle of character, this change in me, disappoints me because I realize I thought I had really grown, but the truth is, I've, I thought I had gone from here all the way to here. It turns out I went from here like to here. <laughs> Dang it. If that's the only thing that holds me to God... Eventually, I'm going to lose my taste for it. Do you understand how all of this works? You can go on and on with this. If you are drawn to God because you like his people, I guarantee you eventually you will be over those people. How many of you came to a small group and loved that? You're just like, oh, this is heaven on earth. I love these people. Let me just borrow it from SpongeBob three years later. You're looking around the table and go, I can't stand these people. I can finish all their sentences. I'm so tired of the same old whatever. And, you know, like half the time, I don't even know who's even going to be here. I'm so over it. Or maybe it's more than just that. Maybe you're not just over it. Maybe someone actually hurts you. The people you thought were supposed to represent God, your people, the ones to whom you finally belonged, stabbed you in the back. And the pain of that betrayal and that disappointment was so great That you don't just leave them, you leave the God who called you together because the truth is, it was never really just God. It was that these people were finally meeting that yearning for belonging. And when you couldn't belong to them anymore, you walk away from all of it. I've seen this happen over and over. We just walk away from the whole thing. I could go on all morning describing how these puddles of experience dry up because they are not enough to hold the human heart for a whole lifetime. If these are the things rooting you to God, it will eventually dry up. It won't be enough. And I've seen this happen over and over. And the sad part of it is that for many churches and Christian leaders, when they see this, they get scared. When I see someone who's drifting away from the community or drifting away from the word of God, When I see somebody who stops caring about whether they're changing and says, you know, I don't even care anymore. I am what I am. 
And that's what it is. It's the, it is what it is, right? When I see people who are so driven and defined by a calling and they just stop caring. When I see people who are so active in doing something for others and then they just become apathetic and selfish again. And when I see that, of course, it's the common response in many churches. Guys, we've got to dial it up to 11. We're losing them. So let's teach even more Bible. Let's do a reading program. Let's get them into it. And we try to brute force this thing by asking for more rain sprinkles. Get that puddle filled again. And I'm not saying it's wrong to try to lead people back to something that blessed them. But what I'm saying is it's incomplete. It's misguided. If our answer to a drying up puddle is to try to fill that little puddle back up again, that is so foolish. Because there is a greater source that lasts longer than experience. If these are the things holding you to God, they won't hold you forever. It's not enough. The only thing that holds us to God is God himself. I don't know how to explain it. If you are happy with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend because you've had amazing dates, well, you better have amazing dates for the rest of your life. Because if those dates ever stop being amazing, you're going to start looking around, I guarantee you. If you haven't actually looked at the person you love, really looked at them, seen them, known them, cherished them, treasured them, then all you have that's holding you to them is a string of really good experiences, and I promise you that will dry up one day. It won't be enough. Oh, I love his letters, his poems. He's so good with words. He just stirs me. Every time he writes me a poem, I get weak in the knees. I promise you one day he's going to write you something. You're like, uh, you already wrote that one to me in 2014. Try harder. It's getting old. Do you get how it works? Eventually, anything less than an encounter with the living God will leave you dry in your spirit and rolling your eyes going, nothing satisfies. I thought Christianity was the answer. It turned out to be a huge disappointment. That's kind of true and kind of not. I think the way that many people experience and try Christianity ends up being a guaranteed disappointment. Because it starts with an experience, and it continues with only experiences. And what John is trying to say is that misses completely the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is not, do you want to have an amazing string of experiences? Start following Jesus, and he will rock your world. That is not the promise or invitation of the gospel at all. What the gospel, according to John, clearly shows us is that Jesus himself is God, and he touches something deep in us that God designed us for. We were not made for experiences. We were made for relationship. That's what we were created for. And we will never be satisfied because we had some good times in God's house. Because eventually, I will stop wanting to go there. The thing that holds the heart to anything is the power of real relationship. A true encounter that opens our eyes. I love the conversion story of the Apostle Paul because he he saw Jesus in only one light and he tried to purify his religion from this viral infection of Christianity. And then one day, Jesus himself encounters Paul as he was on this mission trip of persecution. He was traveling to Damascus to basically put a bunch of Christians to death, and Jesus interrupts him on the journey and reveals himself. Paul had the most amazing conversion experience, I think, in my my opinion, the most amazing conversion experience in human history. And the thing that makes the difference for Paul is not that he experienced something, but that he ran into Jesus, literally. He encounters him. And in that encounter, Jesus does not argue, Paul, come on, let me just spell it out for you. You say this, but I say this. You say He doesn't do that. He just goes, dude, what are you doing? I'm not the problem. I am what you've been looking for all your life, Paul. You have been so zealously chasing after God. Well, now I stand before you. I am him. And Paul, in that single encounter, completely turns around. And what's amazing is he was struck blind, and later when he was finally able to see the truth, 
Something happens. It says scales fell from his eyes. I, I would love to see someone turn this into a movie. I want to see, I, I don't know if, the, have you seen the movie Apostle Paul? Do they do the, I haven't watched it yet, but do they do the scales falling? Just always wondered what that would look like with special effects. But it's such an amazing image like I couldn't see before. And then I saw him finally. And it was like something that was blocking my eyeballs fell out. And now I look at Jesus and I see someone totally different than who I thought I saw before. I think this is the only way that we will be held to God forever. I'm not saying there isn't an inherent joy in learning things or in finding community or experiencing transformation or any of it. All that is good stuff. But the only way our hearts will ever be held to God enduringly is if we actually meet God and see him for who he is. Now, I know people are saying, yeah, but that's, how, that's why we study, because I do find God through the study. Yeah, okay, great, great. But it's possible to spend a lifetime studying and miss the God who you're trying to study. I've known people in Juilliard. I've met them, and they hate violin. I'm like, yeah, but you're the, like the best violinist in the whole Midwest. I know, but I hate it. I'm just really good at it. That's so, so tragic. I've met English majors who don't like literature. What are you doing with your life? I've met counselors who don't like people. (laughs) See, it's not that you can't meet God through all of these things. But what I'm saying is it's possible that if these things replace God, you can spend your whole life trying to follow them and come up empty in the end. That's the great tragedy for so many people is that they think this is the way because it's how it started. That's how they're going to end. Here's the thing. These experiences, and I could add probably six more to that list, they're like movie trailers. Do you know what a movie trailer is? It's a preview. And some movie trailers are horrible because they show you practically the whole thing. I've seen movie trailers where like, thanks for saving me 10 bucks in two hours because I now know what happens. But you know, the thing is, seeing a movie trailer is not the same as seeing the whole movie. The reason for a movie trailer is to invite you, to entice you, to come and see the whole thing, to experience the fullness of that story. But if you go to a movie, munch on your popcorn, watch the five previews at the beginning and say, man, I got five movies at the price of one, that was an amazing deal, and you go home, how stupid is that? See, and I think this is what happens to so many people is they take the preview and they park there forever. They rewind it. They watch it again and again. And yet something profound is missing. In all of this design to draw us to the person of Jesus the Christ, we miss Jesus the Christ and just get these experiences over and over with diminishing returns. And after a while, those experiences start to numb us and they get old and we have to just keep dialing up the intensity just to feel anything anymore. My wife and I, when we were dating, actually had conversations like this. How is it possible to love one person for the rest of your whole life? She would say things like, I'm already kind of like rolling my eyes at some of your bad jokes. I can't imagine doing that for like 60 years. And here's the thing. If what holds you to a person is the way their, their shirt fits, the twinkle in their eye, how much fun they are in conversation, how many of you know that after a while, all of that gets really old along with us? What holds two people together are not a string of experiences, but a real encounter with one another. Truly seeing, being seen, knowing and being known, loving and being loved. There are people who have been next to each other for decades who never saw each other, really saw each other. They treat each other like props or furniture in the house of my life. I know you. 
whatever. You have your place. Just sit on the table, stay in your lane, you know, just be the thing for me, you know, just be my partner, and that's good enough. And we never once look at them and go, wow, I see you. You're broken just like me. You're... And, and we do that to Jesus quite often. And I'm not saying he takes that person like it's a betrayal, but when we do that with Jesus, we lose the treasure completely. Encounter fills the ocean of our spirit. That's just the way it works. Real encounter fills the human heart. Experiences are like shallow puddles that dry up. But an encounter is infinite. It continues to give. You know why I am still crazy about Jeannie? It's not because she surprises me every day or because the dates just keep getting better and better. My goodness, this woman surprises me. She's a 10 times better cook than when she started. None of that is true. <laughs> she is good at stuff. She's gotten better at stuff. And I, I, let me just turn it back around so you're not going to go and text her and be like, oh, he just betrayed you. Listen, I'm the same thing to her. This, this is all getting real stale fast. But the thing is, more than ever before, I've seen this woman. I know her. I really know her. I've listened for hours to her. I st- it's creepy, but I stare at her face while she's sleeping and think about who she is to me, that in this whole lifetime, God's given me one woman, and that's my woman. And I'm staring and going, how on earth did this happen? And I think about her a lot. I'm not just married to Jeannie. I marry Jeannie every day. And I, I share that because I think that's a relatable level of talking about what holds the human heart to anyone. But the same is true between me and Jesus. And the same is true between you and Jesus. That you can miss him completely, fall asleep at church, go, what is the point of any of this? And I tell you, it's because you've missed the very best part. And the hope in all of this is that somehow through this series through the ongoing revelation, the ministry of Jesus directly to each of us. What will happen for every person at Harvest is we'll get way past our dependence on these experiences and we will begin to have real and fresh encounters with the living God. You know, I think about how many profound experiences John and his fellow disciples had with Jesus And how till the very end, they were confused, disloyal, and scared. And then they see the risen Christ after his resurrection. And these losers turn into world changers. It's amazing to me. That they saw the transfiguration. They saw the feeding of multitudes with a little boy's lunch. They saw all of that. You would think if you just met Jesus, God himself, in the flesh, you'd be like, what else is there? I just touched the son of God's arm. How could that not change us? Haven't we said, man, if LeBron became a Christian, can you imagine how many young kids? Nothing would happen. I, trust me. God himself walked among us, and people were like, all right, whatever. It's, he's pretty nice. Until he rose from death, revealed who he truly was, and those who encountered him in that form were completely transformed. If we have an encounter with Jesus that's real, then all of these experiences find their proper place. They stop being an end unto themselves, and they become just one more means by which I gain him. I don't have it posted on a slide, but let me just read for you this amazing testimony of the Apostle Paul that occurs in Philippians chapter 3. Here's what he says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. That's Paul's testimony. After years and years of pursuing God, he meets Jesus, and those are the words he can say. I've got to wrap up now, so I'll leave you with this last invitation or challenge. I'm going to spend a couple months unpacking the Gospel of John for you and with you, but I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. I'm going to ask you to read the entire Gospel of John as many times as you are able over the course of this series. And I'm even going to challenge some of you, not all of you, but I'm going to challenge some of you to do what I did in, in Mexico before I walked over the border. I'm going to challenge some of you to try setting aside a few hours and reading the entire Gospel of John in one sitting. I think while it's not deep, deep study, sometimes in just letting God speak without interruption, we hear things we can't when we're dissecting every word. I've learned the power of this just in counseling people is if I let them speak for 30 minutes without interrupting, it's amazing what I hear them say. Amazing. How much counseling I've aborted because I kept jumping and going, oh, how about this? Or how about that? Or I had a similar experience. And just listening without constantly interrupting, let someone truly speak. I think that's the beauty of uninterrupted reading of scriptures. We say, God, let me stop pausing on every word to dissect every little thing. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And just go, God, speak to me. Just talk. I'm sitting here listening. And that's what can be often accomplished. I don't want to pit study against just reading, but you understand what I'm saying. I think if you've never tried something like this, you'd be amazed how God meets you in it. Just read in one sitting and let those words wash over you. I think in some profound ways, Jesus the Christ will reveal himself to you through John's gospel. And I'm going to make a commitment to you in this series that I'm not going to constantly preach in a way that pushes for a practical application. I think that's the mistake of too much preaching. What can we do in response to this? And I'm pushing and pushing. In this series, what I really want to do above all other things is just go, this is Jesus the Christ. This is who he is. It might get repetitive. That's okay. This is our Savior, our King, our rightful Lord. And I want to show him to you. And then I want to invite you simply to let our hearts respond to him. And my prayer throughout this whole series will be that each of us has a fresh encounter with Jesus, our Savior. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.